Welcome to the New Beginnings Community Church Podcast. Here at NBCC, we welcome the imperfect, flawed, and broken, as much as the healing and thriving, because we are all God's children. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Good morning again, everybody. Well, I'm glad you're with us today, and if you uh, missed uh, communion, uh, we had a good time, and uh, um, hopefully you won't miss it next time. Uh, We are uh, finishing our series on generosity today. We have covered generous with forgiveness, uh, generosity with our time towards others, uh, generosity with the gospel was last Sunday. And today we're going to cover everyone's favorite topic, generous with our giving. And so it's my privilege to be able to share on that. Um, I want to begin, and by the way, next week we start a new series on Christmas called The Arrival. And in one of those Sundays, we're actually going to have our kids ministry come up and sing some Christmas songs to us. Sound like a good deal right there? Yeah. And always, and let me say something about that because... Some Christians think, ah, oh, I don't want to be here when the kids sing. Really? Don't you want to support the next generation of Christians and make sure they feel valuable and they are needed? Absolutely. You want to support them because this is going to be what's coming after us, my friends. Now, generous giving. Um, I'm, I, I do a lot of reading, and I, hopefully you know that. Uh, and I, I read a lot of, little, lot of different things. And I was reading uh, a time back that they said that um, many Americans, uh, it's, what's becoming obvious now is that more and more Americans are unhappy. And you know, that's really weird if you think about it. Because we live in a country where we have so much. Even those who have the least still have a plethora of things more than anyone in a third world country. And if you've ever done any missions in a third world country, you could see people who are dirt poor and yet are tremendously happy in their lives. It's an interesting thing. But here in America, we're finding we're more and more unhappy. And they give uh, different reasons as to what they think is why. And I think there's probably validity to each one of them. I could see that. But I'm going to tell you my I think, okay? And I'm going to use biblical reasoning behind it. Why I think many people in America, why it's increasingly growing unhappy I think we're becoming more and more self-centered I think we're becoming egocentric and it's all about us and if you think about it if you're just thinking about yourself and what you want and what you feel then it's going to get pretty bad inside any amens on that I mean should I think about myself yeah I do periodically I try to only think about myself when I'm trying to connect the dots of why I'm so dysfunctional in an area in the present with where did this come from in my past. I really try to do that because I don't want to stay this way in my life. And I still do that. But I don't want to meditate on myself because it gets pretty ugly inside. Has anyone ever met that old nature inside of you? You kind of want to get away from that person. But the more and more, and and, and by the way, it made sense to me that we're becoming more and more self-centered, thus more and more unhappy because biblically, as I think back and you look at uh, you know you look at Adam and Eve of which Jesus when they asked about marriage he took them to the beginning he made them Jesus said he God made them male and female Adam and Eve real people really existed 
the first 11 chapters of Genesis, real stuff, and that's what's being attacked by liberal Christians and non-Christians. They're trying to eliminate the first 11 chapters of Genesis through everything that's being taught, and you gotta be careful with stuff like that, because if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do is what the psalmist said. But the serpent being manipulated by Satan, he comes up to Adam and Eve, and Adam's standing right next to Eve, and uh, he says, Eve, uh, you know, eat the fruit and you'll be a god. You'll decide what's right and wrong. You're the shot caller. So what he's really telling, us, telling her, among other things, is it'll be all about you, Eve. Just go ahead and eat. It's going to be all about you. And I think that's where self-centeredness in the world. And then you take it a step back further and you realize in your scriptures that Satan was once Lucifer and you find in Isaiah chapter 14 of the Old Testament, Isaiah writes that there was a moment in the antiquity way before time, outside of time before, that Lucifer wanted to be God. The five I wills. I will ascend to the Most High. I will be like God. He was a very self-centered individual and so he, is, he lost his, he's booted out of his position in heaven. And so now you find him manipulating the serpent to get Eve to fall in the same pattern. Now we know that the people, people that are not saved, no offense to you if you're in this room, you're not a follower of Christ. The Bible says you're blind. You're blind to the truth of God's word. I was once that way too, so I'm not trying to put you down. I remember when I was blind and the Spirit of God came to live in me when I said, Lord, I'll follow you now. And man, the Spirit of God illuminates you to see things the way they really are and to see through the scriptures. How many know what I'm talking about right there? Now, it also says in New Testament, 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the enemy, Satan, he dominates, controls, influences, spreads the ideologies of the culture, of the world, and one of them is that very self-centered because he is self-centered, I will, I will, and he passes self-centeredness on to Adam and Eve, and it passes to everybody on the planet. That's why when you become a Christian, you move from it's all about me to I become other-centered. That's what New Testament teaches and so as we look at all these things from a spiritual perspective it just makes sense to me that we're becoming more and more unhappy because we're becoming more and more into ourselves and by the way you don't want to marry somebody who's into themselves because that'll be problems within the first six months any amens on that don't raise your hands now this really 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 messes with generosity if I'm just into myself and what I want Winston Churchill great man stood up to the, the Nazis in World War II wouldn't give in he said this we make a living by what we get we make a life by what we give let's all read that together one two three we make a living by what we get we make a life by what we give now Let's explore. Let's think about this, um, about this self-centeredness and the unhappiness and things like that. Um, so I have these, uh, these grandkids, and I got six of them now. And uh, do your grandkids as a granddaddy, grandfather, do your grandkids come and think plain is hitting granddad real hard? <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? They did that. Why do they have to hit me? I don't get that. But it's like, okay, if you want to hit granddaddy, go ahead. It's coming back at No, I don't say that. So um, I got, but I I observe my grandkids. I I like I like to observe human behavior, just period. And so Link, let's take Link and Link. It's three. You know, my my son Nathan, who was up here, just gave he was the host. I like when he calls me Pastor Jim in presence of others. Um, (laughs) My son, and he's got a daughter, Lincoln, who's three. 
He's got a son, Nolan, who's going to be two next month. He's got another one who's like five months old. That's Maverick. Maverick Del Campo. Is that a cool preacher's name or what? But, um, but so, and so I observed that Lincoln will have a, a toy or something, and Nolan, who's almost two, will see that, and guess what Nolan wants? He wants what she has. And that kid will dive bomb, climb over anything, scramble through this, because he's got to get that thing. And he'll even go, <gasps> he's just crying the whole shot. And he's trying, because he will not be denied. He's going to go, he goes after it. Now, you could flip that around. And there's times when Nolan will have something. And Lincoln, who's three, could just grab it from him. So Lincoln and Nolan's mom will say, no, Lincoln, that's Nolan. Don't do it. Don't do it. And so she won't do it. But what she will do is she'll grab something else. And she'll go up to Nolan. And she'll say, Nolan, do you want this? And Nolan will get, take it, and she'll take the other toy or whatever out of his hand. Has anyone ever seen that before happen? So there's this whole thing in these children, these toddlers, that they want what they want when they want it, and they don't want you to have it. Now, you follow my thinking right there. Now, because they're so young, this is the behavior you would expect, Right? They're just toddlers. Their whole world is themselves, all right? So it's not out of the ordinary. And your kids, if you're two, they're going, you shouldn't be that way. Of course they're going to be that way. They're two or three. And this is another reason why when you throw your children a birthday party and then you tell them, share your toys with everybody else, they will not share those toys. And don't ask them to because they're so young. Their whole world is themselves. Well, I'm teaching them a lesson on their birthday? No, no, no. I'm, I just gave you a free one, okay? Now, Here's the thing. Here's my observation. It's okay for them, two and three years old, to have the world revolve around themselves, to want what they want. I want this. I don't want you to have that. It's all about me because they're two and three years old. Problem is, when they get to be 20 and 30 and 40, and physically they're grown up, intellectually they're grown up, but emotionally, and I've seen it too many times, so have you. They got stuck back at age 5 or 12. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And by the way, you don't want to marry somebody like that because they can promise you all things in the world to make it look really cool on the front side. Then they get the ring on your finger and all of a sudden this person comes out and it's all about them. So you better not rush into marriage fast. Just, just a warning. Got to make sure. But, all, but you have these people running around in grown-up bodies, but some of them are not grown-ups. And it becomes all about that person, and you become very frustrated in that kind of relationship. So it's our job always to grow our kids up as they develop. We've got to teach them to be others-centered. We've got to teach them to be generous. It cannot just be about themselves, or they'll be the most unhappy people around. So today, as we look at generous giving... We're going to look at two players. One is Judas. We've all heard of Judas, I think. And the other one is Mary. Some of us may never have heard of Mary. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus brought back from the dead. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 12 in, the, in your Bibles. And if you start coming here, we like to teach you the Bible. We like to teach you the Word of God because uh, it's very important that we grow in this Word of God here. Any amen to that one right there? So we're going to see the contrast of greediness and generosity. I'm going to give you, I'm going to go through two verses right now very quickly. Then we're going to give three points on, on generosity, on generously giving. So here we go, verse 1 
and verse 2 of chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. John's the writer, one of the original 12, and an eyewitness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, he gives you a time frame. It's six days before Passover, which means about how long does Jesus have to actually live? About six days. Because he's going to die this week. It's Passover week, and they're going to kill him. So now we know there's a time frame of what's going to happen. So it's getting close to his crucifixion. Lazarus here is at the table. Now about the crucifixion. Understand that um, in the scripture, the Bible, in Genesis, we find out about the potential for the injuring of the Messiah way back 4,000 years before this moment in Genesis 3, chapter 15, where his heel will be bruised. And this first mention of Messiah to come, etc. Then we move forward to about 1,000 years before this event, and David, the writer in Psalm 22, gives you some play-by-play of the crucifixion a thousand years before the crucifixion and hundreds of years before crucifixions even invented guys and then you can move to to Isaiah Isaiah 53 which is 700 years before the crucifixion and he gives you a play by 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 play of the crucifixion 700 years before it even happens so when you look at just stuff like that you kind of think I think the Bible is more than just a book I think it's supernatural book any amens on that one right there that it can predict all these things and the prophet spoke and these things happen right on the money boy did they happen now verse 2 so they made him a supper there and Martha was serving but Lazarus is one of those (coughs) reclining at the table with him now so now there's a dinner and Jesus is there now think about the question Jesus is at a supper. They're making him food. What do you think Jesus' favorite food was? If he was coming here, and by the way, this is after Jesus has now declared all foods clean in Mark chapter 7, so he can eat anything in his. Now, wouldn't it it be weird if Jesus, if you could interview him saying, man, I wish they'd invented pizza by now. Anybody on that one right there? Wouldn't that be pretty cool? I wish they'd invented burgers or, you know, carnitas or something by now. Anybody have any hot sauce and tacos? Something, you know, anything like that. So you don't, what is his favorite food? Now here we find in this dinner, we find there's Lazarus brought back from the dead. Martha is serving. Mary's gonna burst in any second right here. Now, Lazarus has been brought back from the dead. Now, can I give you a little sidebar cool thought? Yes or no? Okay, good. Um, Think about this. In chapter 11, previous chapter, Lazarus we know was dead, right? Jesus comes and he raises him from the dead and he comes to life. Because Jesus stated, I'm the resurrection of life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And they go, yes, we believe in, in that. And he, just, he goes, raise the guy from the dead. And John's an eyewitness to these things. And so uh, we have a guy that Jesus brought back from the dead. Now he's alive. Now in chapter 12, we have Jesus sitting at a supper. Isn't that interesting? Now you put these things together in a bigger, wider sense. As you and I, as followers of Christ, before we were followers of Christ, were we dead to God? Yes, we were. Dead means separated from God. We were dead to God. And then we put our faith in Christ and we came alive. And then one day, just like this little short example here, one day you and I, as followers, will sit at the wedding supper of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, in eternity. Any amens? So you see a picture there from going from death to life. 
And then one day we'll sit at a wedding supper just the way he's sitting right here. And I like those little tidbits in scripture, the way the, the writers, I don't know if they meant it, but I think it's pretty cool about that. So here we go. I'm gonna give you three things on, uh, on, 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 on a generously giving heart. Number one, and that is generous giving begins with thanksgiving. Generous giving begins with thanksgiving. Now let's read verse three. Mary then, here's the other sister of Lazarus, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Okay, Jacob, come down. So let, let's, let, let me give you the what as we talk about generous givers or thank, thankful hearts. So we have Mary. Jesus is sitting at the table and he's eating. And the disciples are all there, I'm sure Lazarus, they're all there. And Mary, she bursts into the room and she's bringing a big bottle of perfume. And she's gonna pour that bottle of perfume all over the feet of Jesus. Now, first things first, you and I will think, because we live right now, we'll think, well, how does she pour it over his feet? Well, you're thinking wrong because you're thinking they sit at tables like you and I sit. They don't. They sit at a U-shaped table and the women in those days would come into the U and serve the food. The men, they would lay down, pillow here on their left side and they would reach, get the food and put it in their mouth and their feet, and they're laying on the floor, their feet would go out from behind them. So now you get this picture where Mary has no problem bringing this vial of perfume and pouring it over the feet because all the feet are, are behind her. She has easy access to them. So Mary comes in and she's bringing this bottle of perfume and it says it's very costly. We're gonna find out from Judas that it's worth 300 denarii. One denarii was the average money that a day labor would earn in that day. So if we put that together, it's roughly one year's wages in our time. Now you think about that, that vial of perfume then is worth a lot of money, isn't it? One year's wage, that's a lot of money that she's bringing into that room there. Now, another thing about it is, these vials of perfume, a possibility is that because they didn't have banks, this would be like her savings account. So she's bringing in her life savings into that room is what, is what she's doing. Now, let me paint a picture for you uh, what I want to paint here. Mary in scripture is a little bit of a rebel in a good way. If you go back to Luke 10, I think it is, Mary breaks protocol. She sits at the feet of Jesus where the men would sit or you sit at the feet of a rabbi, but she breaks protocol and she's sitting there and she's receiving teaching from Jesus. You're not supposed to do that, but she does it. And then you're gonna find Mary in the previous chapter when Lazarus is dead before Jesus brings him to life. She runs out of the house, breaks the protocol of mourning for seven days for her dead brother. She runs out of the house and she runs to Jesus. She rebels there, she breaks protocol. Now, now you find her, she should be walking into the middle of the U-shaped table serving, but she breaks protocol again. And she walks around the back and she pours the perfume on Jesus' feet. In three occasions, she breaks protocol 
because she's drawing closer and closer to Jesus Christ. Isn't that a cool little thing right there? Now let me take those three events and, and let me, let me let, let's, we're gonna, in a second, we're gonna use them this way. But let me make the statement first. She comes into the room. Now I want you to think about this. Ladies, you've got your best perfume, okay? It's pure nard, this perfume. This was made from a plant in northern India. So they had to import things to get this kind of stuff. So it's, like I said, it's worth a lot of money. Ladies, be honest. If you're coming in there with your big bottle of perfume that costs you a lot of money, how much would you pour over his feet? And if it's me, I'd, I'd have a little cup. And I'd pour a little bit of that perfume and I'd pour it over his feet, put the topper back on the bottle, I'd go, good, good enough, right? Wouldn't you? I mean, really, let's be logical, right? That's kind of the way we would think. It doesn't make you evil or anything, or does it? No, I'm joking. <laughs> but she pours the whole thing. She dumps the whole thing out on him. Now, let's think of why. Why does she do this? Let's go back to her three rebellious moves in her life that are actually good rebellious moves. First, back in Luke, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus and she's receiving the teaching from Jesus. She's being blessed by God. Any amens? Blessed. Okay. Then in chapter 11 of John, as she cries at Jesus that her brother's dead, Jesus brings her brother back to life. Huh. And now we find that her burden has been lifted by Jesus. Amen? So first we see her being blessed. Then we see the burdens of her life being lifted. And you say, well, Jesus never lifted my burdens. Really, the 40,000 sins you've committed in your life being forgiven, washed away, that's not a burden lifted? Don't ever forget the basics of Christianity. And then now, because we see that she has um, been blessed by Jesus, her burden has been lifted by Jesus, now she walks in the perfume, and she has no problem giving her third B best to Jesus. And she pours the whole thing out. Because there's been, I'm blessed by Jesus, I have, my burdens have been lifted by Jesus, and now I'm going to give Jesus my best from my life. Any amens on that one? And that's a thankful heart. When you realize what God has done and you continue to realize and never lose what God has done, you'll always give your best to God. Now, let me try to put this in perspective of source and where it begins, thanksgiving, giving, everything. Okay. If you're newer to the church, you don't know, I, I'm, you knew I was, some of you don't know, I was limping around a couple months ago. Anybody remember that? Please tell me you remember anything that I've done in my life. Okay. And I couldn't walk around like this because I'm a, I'm a backpacker. I go, hi, Sierra's, and I hurt my ankle this time, this time. And, uh, and I got, uh, went to the doctor, tendonitis, and they got to lay off it and everything like that. And so I laid off it. But what it did was, I have these bucket list trails I want to hike. And, and there's a bunch of them still in Utah I want to hike and stuff like that. And one of them I want to hike is the Narrows. Has anyone ever hiked the Narrows? Narrows, 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 narrows. April, you hike the narrows. Who else back here? Hike the, you hike the narrows. Who else out? hike the narrows back there? Anybody over? You hike the narrows, narrows. Oh, thanks for the invite. Okay, yeah. no, I'm joking. So I want to hike the narrows, and I was supposed to hike the narrows last month. This injury happened early September, so it destroyed my plans on hiking the narrows. Now let me back up two years ago. Two years ago, I was going to hike the narrows. The first time I was going to try to go in there, and what it is is you hike in water. And you're hiking, and I wanted to go two and a half miles in to the Narrows, 
when you finally get to, can I put a lozenge in my mouth? I have a real scratchy, dry throat. Is that okay if I do? Is it okay with you? Because good, because everybody else says no. You're the only nice one here. <laughs> I have a dry cough, and um, and so, mm, and so. So I wanted to get to the where the slot canyon is, where the walls go straight up. And it's two and a half miles in. I just want to see that. And then I'll turn around and hike the two and a half miles out. That's all I want to do. Well, two years ago when I went there, I was ready to hike it. And of course, that day, it rained. Now, if you know anything about rain in a slot canyon, what is the one thing you're not going to do? You're not going to go in there. Because you don't know what could happen to you. Because here's what thing you have to watch out for is I could be in the slot canyon right here but the rain could be cameraman, follow me could be 30 miles away could be pouring over here and the water begins to accumulate and it's far away and, and this water begins to accumulate and get into those places where the water rushes and then it starts to rush and you don't know and you're down here in the slot canyon it's light rain or rain or whatever and the water's so and all of a sudden it could be a torrent cutting, coming at you and if you're in the area where the walls go straight up you have no way out and you die and people have died in that thing so I knew enough not to go in there you know I've learned a few things biblically over the years so I'm not going to go in there but here's my point I want to make what does that do with giving? Watch. Thanksgiving? Watch. The torrent of water where I'm standing could become only one sound effect per service. But where did that torrent of water begin? It began way back here with the storm. With all this rain. It starts way back here, accumulates it, accumulates, and then all of a sudden you got the wall of water that's coming. So by the time it gets here, you got two of them there, two effects. And that torrent of water comes. Listen to me. There's no difference in giving and being thankful than that. When you're thankful to God, it all starts back here. You're blessed by God. Your burdens have been lifted by God. You're so thankful. So your life the water of the Spirit starts to flow in you. And because you're thankful, here comes the torrent of water from your life that flows out in giving because you're so blessed. But the source and the beginning of it was way back there in your life, somewhere previous, where you realize how thankful you are and what God has given you and what God has done in your life. And then you have no problem in the present to let the flow of the Spirit of giving just flow right out. Does that make any sense? It always begins with thanksgiving. Now, the second thing is this. Generous giving reveals hearts. Now, watch this. We're going to read verse 4, 5, and 6, I believe. Now, watch. This is going to expose Judas's heart. Now, it says, but Judas Iscariot, stop right there. Now, Iscariot, not his last name, probably. More than likely, not for sure exactly, but there's a city called Kerioth at the time. And the beginning, Iscariot or Ishkariot. Ish means man. Ishkariot, man of Kerioth, could be Judas, the man from Kerioth. This is a possibility. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, This is John writing after the fact. He knows all the things that happened. Here's what Judas says when he sees her pour that perfume that's worth a lot of money on Jesus' feet. Here's what he says 
Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Sounds right, huh? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor. Boy, a lot of people say things with ulterior motives, don't they? This guy's virtue signaling. That's what we call that nowadays, right? But if you want in the background of his life, you find out all the evil that's in him. Does anyone besides me ever get tired of people trying to lecture all of us when they can't even fix their own life? I get tired of it. Just something I feel inside. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put in. Pilfer means he's stealing from it. Oh, so now we find that giving is revealing what's inside someone's heart. Now Judas, he sees her pour it out. He knows what it's worth. He's mad. And he's mad because that money, he wants that money. He knows he could have sold it. And why would he want to sell it? Why would he want that? Because he's already taken plenty of money out of the money box, right? So logic says he probably has to replace it. And in replacing it, he could also take some for himself. So he wins both ways if he could get that perfume for himself. That's why he's upset. Because he's got to do that in order to cover his tracks. What I find interesting is he's stealing from God. Is that awful or what? Anybody feel like that's pretty bad? Really, you do? Well, Malachi, the Old Testament writer, says this, that if we're not tithing, we're stealing from God. Did you know that? I'm, look, I just deliver the mail. Don't get mad at me, man. I didn't write it. That if we're not tithing, we're actually robbing God, it says. You say, well, somebody's going to say, well, Theo, Jim, it's Old Testament, it's not New Testament. Really? Jesus in Matthew 23, 23 said to the Pharisees, he said, your tithing is right, but don't forget justice and mercy. So Jesus affirms tithing in the New Testament, which carries that over from the Old Testament. So don't tell me it's not New Testament. It came from the mouth of the Savior himself. So Judas, he's mad. It reveals his heart. So I got questions. When we talk about giving here, <coughs> when the issue of giving, or give, what happens in your heart? What happens in your heart that no one can see? What feelings do you feel inside? Oh, I asked for money. When you go home from a mess like this, let's say you're married and you guys aren't tithing, but one of you says, we need to start tithing. What happens in your heart? What happens? Mary or Judas, which one are you? Which one are you? Hold that thought. It reveals her. I just want to talk now. I want to take a few more. I want to talk to one person in this room, maybe five, but maybe it's one. Can I do that? The rest of you can take a three-minute siesta. Because I've seen this happen before. Because some people, don't, they don't give, not because they're angry, they just want your money, which, by the way, Coles and every restaurant does too. When you go out to eat today and they give you the bill, say, oh, you just want my money, just go ahead and tell them that, okay? It's funny how we'll attack the church, but we won't attack anywhere else. Right? 
It's like atheists. Why don't we send them over to the Middle East and they could scream out there is no God, see what happens, right? It's pretty nice living in America that you have freedom of speech, right? That's a free one. You don't have to tithe on that. But some of us, we won't tithe because we're afraid. Now, and this one I feel for you. And let me give you the example that I've run into over the years. Somebody in this room, maybe a couple of you, you grew up with very little. You might have been living with hand-me-downs all the time. And you go to school, and everybody's got the nice clothes, but not you. And that's shame that begins to build in a kid. And we all have shame because of sin. It gets bigger and bigger. And maybe you didn't have enough, even food-wise, some of us. And maybe your parents or parent drove you to school in an old car, and you saw all the other kids' parents coming up in nice cars, and even that made you feel like shame and and just didn't have anything. And so what happens is, to no fault of your own, you utter the oath, I'll never ever, when I get older, I'm never going to live like this again. And when, listen, 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 listen. When you utter the oath, another one is, I'll never be like my dad. I'll never be like my mom. Look at my finger. Which one, where's my focus? On the thing I'll never be like, instead of God. It's a bad focus. But when I focus back and say, I'll never live like that again, that becomes your focus and fear comes in and fear traps. It's an attachment. And now an attachment has taken hold of your life. So you begin to work hard. You go to school. You get a good job, whatever it is. And you accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. But inside of you, it never feels like enough. And when giving opportunities come up, you're like, I can't let go of this because you have what many in the past have is like a a depression era syndrome. People who grew up in the depression era, which my parents did, it's like no matter what they have, they always feel like next week it's all going to be gone. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And so this attachment of fear can get us. Yesterday, I went to the Reagan Library. Ever been to the Reagan Library? You guys got to get cultured, man. I went to the Auschwitz exhibit. And then I got to go to Air Force One, too. I flew it around. It was really cool. No, I didn't fly. But the Auschwitz exhibit, because I'm interested in history, especially World War II, especially Nazi Germany, especially here. I just like stuff like that. I like that, and I'll tell you why. Because I like to see how past history keeps repeating itself. Satan has no new plays through dictatorial leaders. No new plays. Scares me to see things in America happening that are many of the plays that Hitler ran, just to be honest with you. If you go back to study it, don't take my word for it. They're vilifying a certain group of people in America. You know who they're vilifying. And then they're going to get those people out of the way or take their money away. They want to, you know what they want to do. You know it. Be honest. Be honest out loud. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. And so, um, and so I go there. And the Auschwitz exhibits... It's fat, four hours, man. You got You better know you're going to be in there for a while. There was this one part where it talked about when the Soviet army finally got to Auschwitz to free them. And Auschwitz is in Poland. And, um, but they already had the death march where a lot of the, a lot of the prisoners were marched away because they just wanted them to die. They're trying to hide what they've done to the Jews. And... Um, when they got there and freed the few, I think there's a couple thousand that were in the Auschwitz camp that stayed behind. And the Red Cross came in. 
And they started to give food to these people. And they could only give them one teaspoon of soup three times a day because they couldn't. They were so emaciated. They couldn't eat anymore. And then they started to get ill and they gave them bread. And these people that had been in this concentration camp all these years, they would take the bread and they would put the bread under their bed and hide it. Now, there's plenty of bread now, and there's plenty of soup, and there's plenty of food. It's all coming in, but they would take the extra, they'd hide it under the bed. Why would they do that? Come on, you're smart people. Because for years, they wondered, will I even eat tomorrow? What will I have tomorrow? And so they can't break the attachment from the past, and they're hiding the bread, even though there's a surplus of bread. And they're hiding it. Some of us live with attachments when it comes to money and giving. We live in a past where we didn't have this, we didn't have that, and so I gotta hold on tight. And you misunderstand that you serve a living God who will not be in debt to you, but will bless you and keep you if you do what he's saying to do. Does that make sense? You don't have to live like that. You can just be free. Now, third one is this. I gotta move fast because I didn't realize I've been preaching a long time. Generous givers see the eternal and the momentary. Verse uh, 7 and 8, yeah. Watch this, watch, watch. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Whoa. Jesus defends her, right? Right? Leave her alone. He says, because she's doing this for the day of my burial. And then he says, for you always have the poor with you but you do not always have me. Hmm. Think. 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 I've studied this text for years and this idea of seeing the eternal and the momentary, I never thought about that actual a statement like that before and it just popped into my brain. I thought, that's so true. So I kind of built the idea and that's this. Did Jesus preach that they would arrest him and crucify him, kill him, and then he'd rise from the dead many times to the disciples? Did they get it? No. The answer is no. I don't, he said it many, many, and they didn't get it, except there's this one lady, this rebel of a woman named Mary. Did she get it? You better, but she's anointed me for the day of my burial, Jesus. She gets it. She understands it. She sees the result before the result ever happens. Isn't that wild? She saw it. Now, I want you to think about that. What Judas sees is money for me right now, the momentary, right? She sees, I'm going to give you all this stuff because in the moment, it really enters into the eternal, into the future. Jesus will die for me in the sins of everybody. Any amens? So when you give, you've got to see the eternal in the moment, right? Let me give you a vivid example that hopefully burns in your mind. Some of you don't know what that is. You should. This is the Operation Christmas Child box. Our churches all combined gave 361 boxes, okay, which is a great thing. Uh, we became a drop-off center where another 900 to 1,000 came in, something like that, CC, something like that, came in, they dropped them off from other places. And but I want you to think about this. 
when we start to announce as we do every year because you say 3621 yeah but that's a fraction of what should have come in guys for the amount of people on all these campuses some people when they hear operations Christmas, oh you know what I have to 30 I'm not going to give 30 or 40 bucks whatever it costs to fill one of these up and give the I'm, you know what you're thinking momentary that's all you're thinking but when you see the eternal and the momentary you look and say yeah it's going to cost me 30 40 bucks and some of you give more than one God bless you man but those who see the eternal and the momentary they don't look at that they look at this that this little box here filled up with all kinds of stuff for a child in a third world country on the other side of the world is going to get that box It's going to open that box and have a Christmas that that child normally wouldn't have they wouldn't have what you and I have all the time but it's bigger than that in this little box there will be evangelism and salvation being poured out to those children it will be used by the people distributing these boxes to teach the kids about Jesus Christ and what he's done to save them in their life and they have an opportunity to come to Christ through this little box that you put 30 bucks worth of your money into to get this thing overseas that can, do you understand what I'm saying? This is a momentary thing right here. I'll go fill it 30 bucks worth. This is a momentary thing. But in the momentary, there's an eternal impact in some kid's life. Any amens? And if you don't see that in your giving, then you have to go back and be born again, again, again. When you tithe, you know community market. You see it out there once a month, giving away food to people, right? Helping the poor, Right? Yes or no? Your tithe goes, some of it goes to that. Now, I want you to think about this. The proverb writer says this. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to who? Oh my God, the Lord. And he, the Lord, will repay him for his good deed. So when you give, you tithe, and part of that goes to that stuff to feed the poor out there, who are you really giving to? Jesus. That's right that's the eternal you've touched the eternal in the momentary can you see it please yes. good so let me tie this whole series up Jesus has six days to live if the disciples knew which they didn't get they couldn't, didn't comprehend it. if the disciples knew they only had six days left of Jesus before he dies what do you think they would have given him? Everything. Everything, man. They wouldn't have criticized the woman. If they knew that that week was the last week of their life to have an opportunity to give it to Jesus, they'd have given him it all. And we have to think like that. We have opportunities to give to Christ. And how many more do we have? We don't know. None of us know. But we have to think like that. Now, last thing last thing so one day Jesus is telling this parable I'm going to cut to the chase on it he tells the disciples I was hungry and you fed me I was thirsty and you gave me drink I was a stranger and you invited me in I was naked and you clothed me 
I was in prison, you came to visit me. And the disciples say, logically, I would have too. When did we do all that for, to you? He goes, Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these. When you did it to somebody else. You actually did it to me. See, when we're generous, we give, we're touching something way beyond the here and now. We help others when we give, we're actually, give, all that really is giving to Jesus Christ. All of it. And once we lose that reality, we've lost our thankful heart. And we've lost our tendency to give. Not our ability, we all have the ability, but our tendency. When you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me, he says. And we have to remember that. And if we do, we just might turn into the most generous givers around. Amen. Series over. Del Campo out. I never get tired of saying that. So um, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. I just pray something made sense and dislodged some old ways in us to be free so we can be generous people the way you want us to be. I pray something helped in this message to set us captives free again or for the first time possibly in this area. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word because it is explosively alive. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray and we all said, amen. amen. Would you stand up with me, everybody? Repeat after me. Here we go. Lord, keep me outward focus and fill me with your spirit. Give me the boldness to share the gospel with others. Open up opportunities to minister outside the church because I see what I'm looking for and make me into a generous person like you. Hey, God bless you. You have a great rest of your day. Have a great day. God bless. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.